And so any latent or ghosts or letting my mates down or, or the fact that I wasn't there to protect Matt or have his back were wiped clean from that tour with a number of incidences of where I took lead in a tactical scenario and, and took that threat of death directly on myself. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Welcome to our final veteran conversation of Season 7. We still have a Christmas special to go this year, but this is the last one-on-one interview of 2023. Doug Sheridan is a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment. He served for 33 years in the Australian Army, full-time and reserve. This included various deployments with the United Nations, the SASR, and the Australian Federal Police to the Western Sahara, East Timor, the Solomon Islands, and Afghanistan. He served for 10 years in the AFP, as a federal agent and was one of the original air security officers following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Today, he volunteers for Wandering Warriors, plays cricket, and is studying an MBA at the University of Queensland and Harvard Business School. This conversation was recorded at the Gaythorne RSL in Brisbane in March 2023. Doug, welcome to Life on the Line. Hi, Alex. It's uh, really good talking with you today. Thank you. Doug, where were you born? Alex, I was born in Sydney, New South Wales, but spent my primary years in Coffs Harbour and then Townsville and Charters Towers. Somewhere around 1980, my family moved to Brisbane, so I did my secondary schooling in Brisbane. And what sort of drew your interest as a child? What were your main hobbies? Were you academically inclined, sporty? I would say I was sporty. School was somewhat of an embuggerance to me. Whilst I believe my intelligence level or IQ was, you know, sufficient, was perhaps proved later in the military, I didn't apply myself to schooling. And and sport was what I did in predominantly rugby and cricket. When I was young and I was an absolute cricket tragic from, I guess, the age of nine onwards. Do you have any military history in the family? A lot of uh, people you've interviewed before have, have an extensive history and I have a bit. My grandfather was in the Royal Field Artillery, the British Army, I've got one uncle that was in the Royal Navy post-World War II. I believe he served in Cyprus and Israel, I think, directly after World War II. And another uncle who was a South Vietnam vet, he was in the RAF, did an exchange with the US at Khaesan Combat Base during the uh, South Vietnam conflict. And did this exposure, I guess, through the family, was that something that helped fuel an initial interest in military or what first drew you to possibly a career in the Army? I think I had a difficult childhood, which I believe led me to seek out that sense of purpose with the tribe. And army seemed to fulfill that. Where they came from was my father was uh, born in the UK. So he used to regale me with many stories of the SAS, particularly after Princess Gate happened and then the Falklands War. So that was always, the news was always on during the Falklands War. 
Princess Gate was spoken about in my house and that's my, where my interest was first drawn uh, to the Special Air Service Regiment. And I remember back in the day, the Courier-Mail had a, a piece where once a week, if you, you know, bought the newspaper, they put another, I guess, update on the Falklands War out on the back of that, and you could collect the whole series and put them in a Leverage folder, you know, in the 80s. And I believe at that stage, on the back, they had a different soldier type, like a, um, a stereotyped. And that, that ranged from, you know, a Royal Hussar or, a, you know, a House Guard through to Paras, Royal Marines. And then I was absolutely, I guess, focused on one, one issue where I turned the back on, and, and there was an SAS operator. And just that visual image, even though it was this sketch, seared in my brain and I thought, that's what I want to do. Those iconic black and white photographs of the embassy siege that I know was the catalyst for quite a few people to join either the military or chase the SAS goal specifically. So you're not alone in having that as an impactful event that gives you a life direction that you really ended up fulfilling. You're dead right, Alex. And that, that was, I was 10 years, 10 years old at the time, I believe, or even nine. So I was fertile ground. My mind was fertile ground to be imprinted with those images. And then obviously the, the tales and the exploits of SAS during the Falklands conflict further reinforced that two years later. And so two years later, it's kind of an, an inevitability. Yep, joining up, signing that dotted line. You know what? I never thought of anything else, correct? Tell me about your early training experiences. When the reality hits you, is it exciting or boring or a little bit more mundane than the glory stuff you've seen and heard about? Look, it's interesting, um, approaching this interview with you, with you, Alex, obviously it made me recall and relive my career and some memories popped up that, that I'd forgotten about. One step back, I joined the Army Reserve when I was 16 years, nine months, when I was still in year 12. Back in the day, you could do that, and you may still, with the authority of permission of your garden, guardian or parent. So I did that and joined 9RQR. Fast forward to 91, I joined the regular Army because the golf was flaring up and I thought, wow, perhaps we can have a piece of this, you know, as, as a young guy thinks, probably somewhat incorrectly. Once getting to one RTB, I felt like I'd arrived home. This is where I should be. It felt familiar. Obviously it wasn't, but I thought this is where I belong. Coincidentally, and looking back on it, having spent time in, in the Australian Special Air Service Regiment, I've no idea what was going on at the time, but about halfway through my training there, there was bunch of guys in black with balaclavas doing some kind of exercise at one, eight, one RTB Kapuka. It's highly unusual looking back on that. I'm not sure what they would be doing. It's not a normal training venue for SASR, but they were there. And, so, and I remember people saying, don't even look at them, otherwise you'll, you'll be in a world of strife. So that was reinforced in basic training by pure coincidence. And, in, and if you believe in omens or tokens of future fortune, that may well have been one. How did you find that first couple of years before we get to 1993, cementing the skills and just settling into the daily life, the routine of it? Interesting. I, I love the mateship, the camaraderie, that's normal. What I did is I had that dead zone, which I'll just use that phrase, dead zone, where reality hits home, in infantry at least. So I went to infantry, I went to a battalion called 5-7-RAR Mechanised at Holsworthy Barracks in 91. They were the black sheep of the Royal Australian Regiment at that point being mechanised with a bunt of many light infantry jokes or the rest of the Royal Australian Regiment. So it wasn't what I wanted, my first preference. So when I got to 5-7 RAR, you do one year, it's very exciting, you go through the full the normal training continuum. Back in those days, it was one year, then it repeated, and then it repeated. 
So by the second year, I started to get disillusioned already. I was still very young, possibly 21 at the time, and just thought, or 22, if this is what soldiering is, and again, without declaring any political affiliation, early 90s, no budget, no money, going nowhere, deployments-wise. I had a high degree of sameness, so it became boring very quickly, so I was disillusioned. I guess at that stage, any idea of SAS at almost ideas of trying out for SAS had somewhat disappeared because I thought, look, I, I can't even make a go of being a rifleman here. It's too boring. And to be fair to you, by that point, we would have had a small contingent deploy to Somalia, but otherwise nothing since Vietnam. So with, it's without having that regularity of deployments, of tempo, there's nothing on the horizon there to kind of tempt you or give you a light at the end of the boredom tunnel. But then you do take a turn in that tunnel and find light, in a way, in the surprise of a deployment that's not really spoken about very much, Western Sahara in 1993. Can you tell me about that? Because over 220 Australians deploy there over a couple of years. Give us the context. What's going on there? Why were you sent there? What happened there? Very interesting mission, Alex. Australian involvement was over, I guess, around 91 through to circa 91 through to 94. I reckon around 220 personnel deployed over five contingents. Now, this was to monitor a, a ceasefire between the Moroccan Defence Forces and the local indigenous Sahrawi Arab Bedouins of the Sahara. French Sahara and the Spanish had, had abandoned West Sahara and Morocco had claimed sovereignty over West Sahara. Polisario, which was the military arm or guerrilla arm of the Sahrawi, fought back for independence. And hence a war followed and it was argued that it was heavily supported by the French. The Moroccans were heavily supported by the French. And certainly the Polisario had Eastern Bloc or Soviet-supplied armoured weapons and, and weapons of all type. So it was uh, another quasi-East versus West sort of scenario playing out there. We were deployed. Signals Corps were deployed as the mission signalers. And at some point thereafter, about I think three or four rotations, someone must have had a whinge in Arms Corps. So my contingent being the last were the token arms corps people. So two from artillery, two from armour, two from infantry. I had the complete fortune of being selected as the, the one private regimental signaller out of 5-7 RAR to be chosen to go on that mission. And I was in SIG platoon at the time, which is ironic because in those days being a handbag, you know, a regimental signaller in, in an infantry unit was like an albatross around your neck. No one wanted that. Funnily enough, I did have the foresight beforehand to realise that SIGs were getting regimental signalers, seemed to be getting deployed to Cambodia and so on. So I thought, you know what, if I do a regimental signaler course, I might get a Guernsey for one of these missions down the track. So whilst everyone else was dodging this course, I ran for it, got it and by pure luck, but with some foresight, paid off and I went to West Sahara. You were strategic about it though. When you got there on the ground, what was that like? Because you've grown up on east coast of Australia and you're 20, 21, and then suddenly you're on the other side of the world and getting to, quote-unquote, do the job for real. How did you find that? I found it unusual in a number of ways. One, I'd never worked with another corps, nor females in those days in 91 being. Now, infantry was pure male, nor had I worked with any other corps. Then landing in Sahara, a Muslim nation, I'd never been exposed at this, this stage to the Muslim culture or religion or lifestyle. And it was literally, as, as I said, like landing on a landscape from the moon. Different culture, Arab-Islamic culture. You had that French influence. 
the history of Spanish, Spanish Sahara or the march or die French Sahara, massive amount of history, difficult, and then there was the abject human misery that I'd never been exposed to before. Children, their skeletal structures broken, deformed at a young age to make them more viable beggars for their parents later on. So they wouldn't set, they'd break the hips or legs, let them set at strange angles so they couldn't walk. But then they could utilise them. There's a better begging option to bring cash into the family later on. Some of these children, if they were then orphaned, there were ones living out of drains, a subterranean drainage system in the, the capital of West Sahara. So they would come out like some kind of minions of, of the devil at night, snarl at you and hiss and, and, and try to obtain money from you. So it was the most atrocious third world conditions at some point you can imagine. I can only guess the sort of impact that would have on you, the growing experience, the perspective it would give. What was the day-to-day like of what you were doing in a snapshot? Day-to-day was we did three, three weeks on, one week off. So it, it was pretty crazy in some ways. At that time, we got remote leave or compensatory leave, three weeks in the desert. So I might be 1,500 kilometres in a remote team site from the headquarters of West Sahara itself. So I might be south at, at a, I use a term, FOB loosely because they were so small. I'm a multi-nation peace monitoring site and they were dislocated all over the Western Saharan Desert and they weren't located near townships. So they were truly dislocated. And the Australians provide the SIG element in the radio room at each small team site. So each three weeks we would rotate to another team site. So it was three weeks on, then we get flown out to the Canary Islands via Russian Antonov, have a great time, seven days, fly back in, rotate to another team site and repeat. Rinse, repeat for six to seven months there. That's a contingent that's been largely forgotten. And even some of your podcasts, I hear some of your people you're interviewing and and through no fault of their own, they they mention they go through the list of UN deployments. Somalia, Rwanda, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Bougainville, you know, later on Bougainville. But as you say, all those missions, even Namibia gets brought up, you know, that in the late 80s and rarely if ever does Sahara come up. And you've got to search for it. And I think it's important that it remains salient in our minds that it was um, an unusual and worthwhile mission. Ultimately, we did have to pull out, or we decided to pull out in 94. The Australian government, and rightly so, and the Australian government, I think, viewed that mission as ineffective. And they've been proven correct because as of this morning, that mission is still going 30 years later with no result. Still going? Still going. That ceasefire is still in place. In theory, those all those armoured vehicles are still in position and have not moved for 30 years. And there's still lately sporadic gunfights between Moroccan forces and uh, Polisario. That's fascinating. I had no idea about that ongoing nature. Wow. Coming back to your perspective at that point in time, Doug, I get the sense you come home and that boredom and that restlessness you were feeling before that deployment, although it wasn't a kinetic high stakes deployment in a sense, you've seen some stuff. Does that give you a firmer sense of direction of purpose of momentum with this career? It did, Alex. I felt refreshed, energized, career wise. I came back to the battalion. I was one of the only infantiers that had deployed in 5-7-R at that time. We had a cascade of, uh, of Cambodian tourists or veterans come back just after me or around the same time, but I was the only one from West Sahara. I got a tremendous amount of self-confidence out of the fact that I was the one private soldier picked out of the battalion for that. There was the, the tri-core or the, the multi-core experience I obtained over there. As soon as I got back, my performance level went up. I did subjects for corporal, obtained student of merit on those through the energy that I, that I threw at it. And SAS started looming on the horizon. 
the thoughts of that once again. You had that sense of drive and then that resurrected the dream. Tell me about when you went for SAS selection, what that was like in the 90s. We had a range of guests talk more about the late 90s, more early 2000s experience. So it's interesting to compare. Tell me about your memories of SAS selection. Two things come immediately to mind, Alex. And the first one that that can't be, that is um, integral to my experience, is Matthew Locke. Sergeant Matthew Raymond, Locke MG, was my one of my best buddies, if not uh, my best mate at that time. I was his groomsman just prior to selection and, and we bonded over, I say, a shortish period, but let's say 18 months together, having done the Duke of Gloucestershire Cup together, the infantry competition, um, where we did very well, him as section commander and, and I as his 2IC. We made a deal together. We looked back in the day, it was a 13-week selection or correction training program that we throw out to you. And we looked at each other and said, let's keep each other honest here and not miss one session. Sure, we can throw extras in. Let's not miss one. Let's keep each other accountable and train together, each one together, and make sure we complete every one. This is a pre-selection training program. Correct. SSR used to put out, and and still do, but they used to put out a 13-week training guide. You know, Monday morning, AM, do this. PM, do this. And it sort of escalated over 13, let's say maybe to the 10th, 11th week mark and then start to taper off with the idea of, of being that when you hit the 13-week mark, you could walk straight onto selection and physically at least be as ultimately prepared as you could be given your, your physical wherewithal, you know, what God gave you, genetics genetics, and so forth. Secondly, what I find interesting today with, with selection courses is they're predominantly or they're held over 21 days. So each candidate knows they have 21 days. I believe there's some psychological solace to be found in that. There's an endpoint. When I did selection, there was no endpoint. If you're familiar with Phantoms of, of the Jungle, which is now Phantoms of War, selections have gone from memory. Durations between, let's say, 12, and I think one went 12 days. I think one may have gone for as long as 45, 48 days. Sure, there was a rest day in there. And I, if your listeners could imagine, I've just said rest in inverted commas. That was roping all day from a tower. So they probably got eight hours sleep and three main meals that day. I guess I just adjusted battle rhythm or tempo of the course, slightly less intense for the 48 day or 45 and highly intense for the 12. But the point being, uh, no end date. So there was no psychological solace there whatsoever when I did selection 97. Selection is often quite a formative experience for people and it's uh might be a little traumatic, but it's something to look back on with pride at having accomplished that and to do that with a buddy like Matthew Locke and get through that together, that forges an unbreakable kind of connection. It does. This is a great opportunity to talk about Matthew Locke and I feel that there's not enough good news stories about SSR or getting around nowadays that there should be. And heroes like Matthew Locke, I tend to have, I believe, the awareness of, of what they've done and, and what they achieved with their service has gone somewhat dormant over time. So it's great to talk about Matt and the type of guy he was. Matt was hilarious. You know, he loved his bourbon and cokes, Jack Daniels or, or what have you, and was not afraid of a Winnie Blue or, or PJ Blue cigarette back in the day. But he was genetically one of the most gifted athletes I've ever seen. My thought, my first memories of Matt was when he hit the battalion, he was the youngest soldier in the battalion, so 17 still. So not legally able to deploy at that point either, whilst being a qualified rifleman, tradition certainly in 5-7 RA and maybe most battalions, was the youngest soldier cuts the cake during the time of the battalion birthday. 
So I remember seeing him do that and he was certainly in the platoon behind me at Kapuka and at the School of Infantry, so I was well aware of him. Doing selection with Matt, that, that was, you know, very funny back in the day, 97. I think we extinguished our last cigarettes at Raff Richmond in Sydney, jumped on the Herc and that was our last cigarette for three weeks or four weeks as it turned out. And then doing selection together and just the ability to have someone of that calibre and such a close friend, having the ability when it was tough on selection, even though we were in different squads or training sections, having the ability to look at each other and just share a moment of strength through eye contact made all the difference to me. And we both said to each other we made an agreement. There was only one way we were leaving that selection course and that was horizontal, whatever fashion that was. And we meant that, hoping if it did occur, which we didn't want it to occur, but if it did, it would be a stretcher, certainly not death, but we weren't leaving. Again, I, I go back to the history of SSR. We, it may still be the case we've lost more in training, more deaths, more soldiers in training than even warlock operations or war. So deaths on selection have occurred before. I'm not suggesting that we necessarily thought it was going to occur on ours, but we weren't leaving, full stop. And just jumping forward in time, then Matthew Locke is tragically killed in action with E-Troop in the Chora Valley in 2007. Where were you when that occurred? Where, how did you hear the news? Interesting story, I, I think, with this, Alex. I was with the Australian Federal Police at the time and I was in the tactical group and I was there, uh, Sierra One or National Sniper Team Leader. I was at home on a Thursday night and look, it's, it's somewhere around 9pm-ish, let's say 9 to 10, and the news flash came in and I can't remember whether or not they actually said, identified it as a special air service soldier or just a soldier, but it certainly said that someone's been knocked over in Afghan. My hair stood up on a, you know, on the back of my neck. I had goosebumps and I had another very close friend over there as well with, with the regiment, Clay, and for some reason his name popped straight into my head and I was convinced it's Clay. Clay's been killed. And I, I, I didn't sleep the rest of the night. I was distraught as I was very close to Clay as well as, well as Matt. And then eventually the news filtered through that it was Matt and I, had, I, did, I didn't see that coming. So it was a double shock, I suppose, or shocked twice, not any less of a shock and not more of a shock because both very close mates. Quite bizarre that it was Matt, very heart-rending. But what was curious about that, still terrible, was Clay was one of the two ICs on the ground, perhaps within a couple of arms reach of Matt when he was actually shot that day. So it, it's just odd that there's a, dozens of guys I could have thought of, dozens of good mates in the regiment, but my mind went immediately to Clay for some reason and I was very close, unfortunately. So I was prepared somewhat, but when you know, I found out it was Matt, it was, it was devastating, devastating to me. Let's go back to the late 90s. You and Matt and others have reached this dream, this pinnacle point. You have passed SAS selection, you're going through the reinforcement cycle and you're part of one of the most prestigious regiments in the world. And then you can think back to when you were a child, when you were 10, 11 years old and seen the Iranian embassy siege photos. Did it feel like dream come true? Look, initially it did. You may have heard this as, as, a, as a common theme or story. When you finish... SSR selection, that's what you've done, you've finished, you've not been selected. So there's a period of time there and it may have been overnight or I think it may have been they prolonged the torture overnight. So then we had to line up the next day at Rio Wing and be interviewed and be told, have we actually been accepted or not? I guess the psychological state I was in, I was that angry and I was fueled in anger to get through those last five days of selection and I was convinced that I was going to tell them no. Thanks but no thanks. Keep your regiment, you can have it to yourself. 
I'm going back to the battalion. As it turned out, the minute they said I was accepted, a flood of endorphins went through me. Slight change of heart. <laughs> split second, Alex. Split second. And I, I, while it's not comparable to the birth of my children, it was the same endorphin dump. You know, I felt fantastic. So there was that. I guess my SSR, SSR created a, a very stalled start during reinforcement cycle. I, I broke my leg during the, you know, the SF para course. So that put me back one whole selection cycle. What it also did, unfortunately, on a, on a personal level, is I'd already relinquished my rank from corporal, acting sergeant, I think I was getting HDA as sniper supervisor of five, seven hour hour at the time. Reduced my rank back to private. And whilst not very qualified yet, because I hadn't, I was one or two courses short at that point, and be awarded a beret then in 97 or 98 as it was, I was back on dig, you know, normal army, regular army private wages, set up living in Cottesloe Beach, which is quite a prestigious area in Perth. And, paying a fairly high rent on army diggers' wages, not SSR wages, reduced back to private, no SAFA, no nothing. That seems like a poorly structured transition point. Different transition point. I like to think things would be managed differently. The person in that, I guess, predicament nowadays in the, in the regiment. But I just had to stick that out. And, and more importantly, I guess, I lost my mates around me, my Rio, my Rio group, my selection group. They're far too busy. They're, they're sprinting on the reinforcement treadmill at that point. And they've got no time nor energy to look back, provide any sort of mateship or, or time. They're, they're too busy, they're gone. Most of the time they're not even in Perth. Of course, I had my partner at the time, but there was that loneliness, lack of comradeship. I remember going and selling things at cash converters just to survive monetarily. So it's really testing for you then, I guess, because you felt that bitterness or disgruntlement towards the end of the selection course and then rush of endorphins and then further setbacks fairly early on so it's not quite dream come true or it's a very short-lived dream as we've been going through the 90s more as we've discussed more deployments and such happening for australia are you still holding out hope well look i'll recover and i'll get back on the game and then i'll get to actually do this thing properly when do you uh, go to timor you certainly never lost the dream whatsoever rotated back into another cycle of rio troopers around 98 i did my assault swimmers course i became i was a water operator did my dive course and assault or assault swimmers course. Came straight off that and then remarkably, Timor kicked off, you know, in my mind anyway. I wasn't a mad or avid follower of global affairs at that point. So I came straight off my water operators course with a number of others, went straight to three squadron, as I remember almost immediately, flown straight to Tyndall and we went into isolation to commence planning for what may or may not have been a sojourn or a, an SSR move into East Timor which did subsequently occur, as we know. And tell me about your experience with that. Very interesting. I, I saw, I guess, human nature with how people acted and performed in training and how that manifested in, in real-life operations, both good, bad and indifferent. Regular Army, tri-service and also within SASR. I had a brilliant tour. Uh, what I did see is we were initially meant to, at that stage, there was these squadrons were given rotation. So one was, one of a better term, we are doing domestic counterterrorism, so TAG. We were the TAG, tactical assault group there. So one did that. One did overseas recovery, or I guess overseas TAG, for want of a better term, recovering Australian nationals and including warlike deployments or training. So we were meant to go for six months. At the three-month mark, we were pulled back because they wanted to spread the love. So they changed that training continuum or, or rotational continuum. And they changed pretty quickly once we, SSR got one of the squadrons got their teeth into something tangible 
it's easy to forget in those first couple of days, weeks and months, there was a definite threat on the ground. From memory, trying to think the other day, prior to this interview, there were five relevant gunfights early. People say that Seymour was subsequently benign. My belief is it was benign for a reason. We made it benign. We came in fighting tradition, our traditional jungle fighting ops or TTPs, SOPs, the abilities we carried on from our peers, people that passed on to us from South Vietnam. We exploited those and used them in East Timor. We gave the militia parts of the Indonesian military that may have been involved with the, with the militia. We gave them a real touch-up and a, a, terrible, a terrible bloody nose early. Another way to put it would be we, we removed their will to fight. Because in the Western Sahara, I suppose you'd seen great poverty and just a very different way of living, a very different world, but it was less of a kinetic, shall we say, experience. And then you're coming in here and this is your first proper operational warlike experience. How was that? I must be particularly well trained at that stage because when I first heard a shot ring out in anger, I gave it traditional military timing of two, three before I decided to react. I mean, I think my brain thought, is that really a gunshot? So once you get through that first one, I suppose you, you don't fail, you don't take two seconds to react moving forward. There was certainly a high level of threat there in the early days and we were up for it and we performed very well, I think. That early contingent had a interfaith or response forces, we were known because we were there under Chapter 7 peacemaking, United Nations operations. We had a troop from New Zealand SS and a troop from the British SBS so all up there were, there were a number of over a dozen bona fide gunfights. It was interesting. We were doing our job for real. I was lucky enough to do a range of different operations. We did joint patrol, patrols or operations with the Falentiel, which were the military arm of the political group Fretland. I ended up doing a month of close protection, our troop, water troop on Janana Guzmao on his triumphant return or release from prison in Indonesia and, and he returned to uh, East Timor. So we looked after him because our intelligence reports were that the Kapasus or Kapasus were looking at deploying an airborne squadron to execute, assassinate him. He was such a, a political, an important political piece for the whole operation and East Timor that uh, an SAS troop was dedicated to protecting his welfare. And then I did the, the classic jungle patrols, the, the special reconnaissance, the OP patrols that went for you know, a couple of weeks at a time. So good variation there. And I think the squadron performed very well. And while you're there, you're busy doing the work. I'm sure they're keeping you occupied and you're just, you're very professional. You're very focused on what's happening. Maybe as you get later into that deployment or even once you get home, do you then reflect on what's your thought process? Well, that was cool. Or is it gratifying or um, what goes through your mind when you start to reflect on this experience of firsts? Look, to make light of initially, we thought, well, well, we've been ripped off, literally been ripped off by the, the squadron that ripped in. Our tour has gone from six to three months, so it's been curtailed. Because we're having a ball in so far as we're doing what we train for. We're SAS troopers and we're conducting special operations, defending people in many ways, if not completely liberating a nation and fighting for Australia's best interests. Getting home was a disappointment. I didn't want to leave, to tell you the truth. It was odd because I, was, I went straight, onto, straight online with the tactical assault group, so doing domestic counterterrorism for, I believe, 18 months there. 18 months or even two years, we had to double up. We had a double tour, I believe, at that point. It was a stark contrast to the jungle fighting we were doing early days East Timor or Interfed and then coming back and doing domestic tag. 
and the tempo of tag is sort of well known as being quite relentless, endless drills, training, training, and obviously set in a very working to defend Australian shores. It's very different to the Timor jungle existence. So that would have been a weird switch. But did the tempo of that, I guess, keep you focused? It was good to have forward momentum. I think so, Alex. It was quite bizarre. It was almost Monday to Friday drills with, with TAG. There were a few two-week deployments. Or there might have been, you know, once a quarter. Basically, when we were doing continuation training, it was Monday to Friday. Long days, sure, but a short day Friday, clean weapons knock off at 2 o'clock. So you're in this battle rhythm of Monday to Friday, comparatively more family-conducive or family-friendly than being on warlike operations or, or war standing, where you, even if you're not deployed – you may go on a four-week exercise or a six-week exercise. The point being you got more home time. A work-life balance, as they say. Comparatively, yes. It was a better work-life balance. When's your next experience? When do you go to the Solomon Islands? I went to the Solomon Islands in early 2001, and that was part of OpTrek, from memory it was called. That was to monitor discreetly, if not clandestinely, the peace negotiations between two different parties the background of that from memory was military had broken down and gone rogue, mass incidences of murder, rape, you name it, horrendous crime, and, and the police were overwhelmed and or joined in. So complete loss of law and order. So there were militia groups that had taken control and fighting against each other to try and come out on top in some kind of mad power struggle. There were two groups there recognised as potential political leaders moving forward to make Solomon Islands a peaceful state. So we went across on, on a naval ship there and we dressed in ostensibly as Navy, I suppose, discreetly not showing an SSR presence, but just to monitor to ensure that during the meetings, pick them up, drop both parties back, ensure they literally didn't punch on, stab or shoot each other. So keep peace process on track. Discreetly keep the peace. Definitely, definitely. And that was literally standing behind them in a meeting room on board the naval ship, ensuring they didn't punch on. 2001, you've been in the military for just over a decade, deployed three times, member of the Special Air Service Regiment, and then the world changes when 9-11 happens. You would have quite an informed perspective at this point to understand the ramifications of that or the possible ramifications of that. What's your memory of 9-11 and I guess your first thoughts on how your job may directly change or be impacted as a result of this? Yeah, interesting because I was still in Special Air Service full-time then my marriage at the time was suffering from my service, I suppose, and I was thinking of, of discharging and or taking a break from especially air service. And in those days it was, you know, urban myth but true because I'd seen it occur. You could discharge but then walk back in the gates. A year later, providing your reputation had been good and the regiment would accept you back immediately, you know, provided you left. On I've board. heard that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, back in the day. Not sure. I don't think that will work nowadays necessarily. So I was at home and, again, whatever night of the week that was. But again, it seemed to be somewhere around 1.9pm. And I actually had the old remote control, but no Sky Channel at all. And I was cycling through the old four-channel routine like we did back in the day. And everything was just boring and I'd cycle through it. And I remember stopping and seeing an aircraft hit a building. And I thought, that's a really strange movie, that. It reminds me of Towering Inferno, which I saw. What a special effects budget. Yeah, yeah. geez. And I've literally changed channels. It's not even registered as, as being real. And I've done the rotation of channels again within two to three minutes to come, come back to it. And there's something's twigged. This is for real. So I've stopped and then I've subsequently, I believe, seen the second plane hit. And then immediately thinking that, one, I'm going to get called in. 
are we going to war now? Funnily enough, it didn't happen, but hoping, knowing that it probably would occur, hoping it would occur, and it never did for me personally at that point. In 2002, some of our SAS personnel are deployed to Afghanistan. That's our initial response. And then back in that country with a more intensive presence in 2005, and of course, Iraq's in there as well. But in 2002, you're not going with the regiment. You take a slightly different career change. You go from full-time to what you've described in the resume you sent me ahead of this interview as contracts. You also joined the AFP. You're one of the inaugural air marshals, which I want to talk to you about. Before we get into the police work, how does just the dual life of SAS AFP work? Because you're not severing the SASR ties, but you're also taking up another gig. Can you explain how that works? It was difficult. I'll address the cultural aspect of it first. Within the AFP, there's 50% of people that are special air service supporters, for want of a better term. There's 50% that dislike you on site, dislike what military stands for. There's a culture clash would be one way of saying it. On the other side of the coin, going back to the military, the same thing existed. 50% that may think it's slightly interesting. I worked in the AFP and then you had a large portion that mistrusted why I was coming back and doing military service when I was in the AFP. So, and weren't particularly great lovers of police per se, the culture that is. So it was a culture clash wherever I went. You didn't fit into anywhere? Probably not. I had my supporters and detractors, no extreme. Living those dual roles or deployments at the same time, my career became inherently polarising. Not wanting to pry too personally, but you decided before that you felt your marriage was suffering as well due to, I guess, the pull of your service. And I can imagine how demanding that life of service is. Is it really, though, a step down in your time to make SAS somewhat, quote unquote, part-time? And you're also then juggling this second career, so to speak. Did that stretch you thinner? Was that easier? Was it the same comparable kind of tempo? I think so. At that stage, what my plan was to request from SASR a year's leave without pay and go and do the air marshal thing. This was prior to any announcement of special air service deploying to Afghan. And I believe in life, once you take a step forward, don't look back. Once you make a decision, you made it with good, good information. doesn't mean you can't reassess, but I'd made a positive step forward. I'd moved to Canberra temporarily to start as an air marshal. So I, I commenced that training after 9-11. So I initially left the regiment for a period of time to hopefully reinvigorate or, or save my marriage. Regardless, my career, my military, my overseas career, even with the federal police, I was part of the, the offshore tactical response team. So I was away on numerous occasions quite often. The biggest sacrifice I've had to make in my life is my relationships. Very happily married now to a, to a lovely lady in a lot of ways saved my life. But it's easy to blame other people. And I could do that. It's not about blame. Well, things that could be done better on both sides of the coin. But there's certainly a pattern there. And I, if I look back when I deployed to Afghanistan 2009, I remember telling my partner at the time, look, I'm going to, I'm taking military leave from the AFP. I'm going to Af Afghanistan with, with Special Operations Task Group. And she said, look, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't meet a soldier. I met a, a federal agent. I don't agree with this. And I pretty much was to the effect of, look, that's noted. I'm hearing you. I'll see you in six months. Didn't give it too much more thought. That was, I guess, a pattern through my life where service was always, it was so consuming. I never thought twice about it. It just was. It was top of the list always without question. I wasn't even self-aware enough to think I was choosing it. There was no choice. It was service. And then anything after that that I could maintain was a bonus, including a relationship. 
Talk to me briefly about the air marshal role. That was very interesting. Going back to the point I made about requesting a year's leave without pay from SASR, 9-11, and then the, the war story goes that John Howe was in the United States when 9-11 happened, and I believe he was, and he made a promise verbally that they would be on board with a air marshal capability. That promise was made without full consultation with supporting bodies in Australia. So the war story went. What happened at the coalface in Australia is it was a political hot potato and no one wanted it. SSI, I believe, were offered it. They wanted nothing to do with it. The AFP were offered it. Initially, they wanted nothing to do with it. So it had an unholy birth under the Attorney General's Department. So it was run by the AG's Department and that's where the air marshal genesis began for Australia in 2002. I was part of the initial cohorts going through. Did my training, I guess, with my SSR experience knowledge, skills and abilities. I was quickly brought onto the instructor team and ran a number of cohorts through qualification to become an air marshal over the next year or so, culminating we had over 100 air marshals at one point. And were you finding that you were enjoying the work? It was fulfilling? Because it's also, it's quite different to the sort of tempo you would have been at, but it was a good change. Again, it allowed me to meet a whole demographic of people that I hadn't before, obviously police officers, ex-police, because at that stage we weren't even considered police officers per se. We were federal officers. We operated under some very peculiar legislation or laws being Crimes Aviation Act, Hague Conventions, and we were all unsure as to what would actually occur legally if we had an incident in the air and, and we, had to, we had to shoot someone on an aircraft to maintain the integrity of that aircraft. All of us were unsure as to what would actually happen there. It was a difficult time knowing what was going on. But what I would say is we became very, very good at pistol and combat shooting. This is all we did. This is well before combat shooting has become a thing now in, in the in Special Forces and regular Army. We were doing rhythm drills, you know, back in the day in, in 2002 and we were exceptional shots. We were putting down potentially thousands of rounds each per day, day in, day out for months. I don't think anyone really under the age of 25 listening at the moment would really old enough to remember but just the climate at that time the level of paranoia of fear of this overwhelming public desire for action and security and just seeing how from the average passenger's perspective how airports changed uh, so quickly and so radically it's a it's a role that i think there was a lot of nervous energy a lot of anxiety a lot of desperation to find something to fix and implement some kind of control on something that had felt so out of the blue and was obviously going to have ongoing ramifications for the Western world. So it was a fascinating kind of a position to be caught up in and doing that coalface so early on. It certainly was. And our dealings with the, with the FAMs or the Federal Air Marshals, the US Federal Air Marshals, that was interesting because a lot of them were ex-Naval Special Warfare, that is colloquially known as Navy SEALs or, or US Army SOF, and they'd retired. So they'd, you know, they'd done their 20 years of 40. they rock and roll straight into becoming a US Federal Air Marshal. So understanding the deep psychological scarring that the United States suffered from after 9-11 and still being affected by, it's changed the whole psyche. Everyone's heard the stories, but I, I lived it. I went back to the States around 2009 to do a sniper instructor exchange with the FBI hostage rescue team. One of the students there I, I had a conversation with, and he was a, a corporate lawyer in LA when 9-11 occurred, like thousands, if not tens of thousands of U.S. citizens turned up at various recruiting offices the very next day to join the U.S. military to recompense or to take some action to to make right what had occurred to the United States. 
he was a corporate lawyer, went straight to the Marine Corps the next day or recruiting office, became a Marine Corps platoon commander, subsequently was involved in the original Battle of Fallujah, came back, discharged after his four years, feeling that he'd done that. Victory had been declared by Bush at the time. Most memorably, yes. Yes, most, mem- most memorably. So he came back, joined the FBI and continued on. So that idea of service stayed with him. He just did that career pivot from military to FBI. So, And that, that story was very common to the US experience and individuals around that time. And you, Doug, you go on through with your AFP career and we'll come back to some other highlights later in the conversation. But at the same time, you're seeing, I imagine, friends and colleagues who are stayed with the regiment and Afghanistan 02 deployment occurs, the Iraq invasion occurs, we find ourselves back in Afghanistan. So you're an informed spectator still connected to the regiment, obviously. So I can imagine that's quite interesting sort of perspective where you keep switching from the beret to the other hat, so to speak. You deploy again to Timor and the Solomon Islands with the AFP as well. I want to jump ahead to let's look at the road to when you get to Afghanistan, deploying with the SASR and just those intervening years of switching the hats back and forth, so to speak, observing what's going on. How did the Afghanistan deployment come about? Where were you at career-wise at this point? How did you feel about it going into it? Interesting. Thank you, Alex. At the time, I was part of the the AFP offshore or what is now the National Tactical Group. So I was, our role was to detect, deter and disrupt, and that is outlaw motorcycle gangs, certainly organised crime, any sort of drug activity that fell under federal jurisdiction. So that's drug imports, drug making equipment, precursors to the same, anything like that. So there was adrenaline, it was occurring, we were doing live jobs, knocking over, you know, outlaw motorcycle gang, conducting operations for want of a better term, probably where I should leave that. But after the news of Matthew Locke, I, I started suffering some mental health issues insofar as survivor guilt may not be the correct phrase, but I certainly felt affected. Of course I was affected by his death, I was devastated. I attended his funeral in Perth in 2007, but I felt I had to deploy. I felt like I'd let my mate down. I felt like I'd left him in the lurch. I'd gone off, become an air marshal, done all that training. Yes, I'd served, but I'd also sat in business class eating smoked salmon and drinking fine coffee, finely ground coffee on the way to Singapore whilst he was fighting and doing the cool role and job that we both shared, dream we both shared. I felt like I'd let him down. I felt like it was somewhat un-Australian of me. Looking back, I had no choice for my own mental stability and health. I had to deploy to honour his memory and to feel like I'd backed him up and backed up my SSR mates at that point, beginning to experience or were experiencing a horrendous treadmill of operational tempo. They needed relief, as in tour relief and exposure on the ground. That's how that occurred. So it was immediately I became aware of a trip being available with Special Operations Task Group. I grasped it with both hands, took military leave and deployed. When was this? This was over the winter rotation of 2009, 2010. And it was with one commando regiment. For a number of reasons, it was decided that some SSR personnel would be involved in this trip where they hadn't necessarily been before. So the OC of FE Charlie was an SSR major. So was the, the company 2IC. A number of key players within that were SSR members, albeit the reserve component of SSR or otherwise. They were bona fide barrier qualified operators. So I went across as, as a sniper team to IC and subsequently completed that tour as being one of the, the special operations task groups, sniper team commanders. 
And that had a, a range of challenges. It was very rewarding, challenging but enjoyable. Because I understand the reputation is generally like reserve regiments like one commando would be often be deployed primarily over that winter rotation because the fighting season, of course, is in the summer. So it's meant to be theoretically a less kinetic time of year. Was that the case in your experience? Volume-wise, I guess there would be no doubt that it's less kinetic activity. However, kinetic activity was occurring. Gun battles were happening. Firefights were happening. In 2009, 2010, we were still running a large number of GAF or ground assault forces, so we were using vehicles to move. The IED activity was large, still on the ground. So there was a high threat, and I was, I was part of the sniper lead element or sniper team commander was providing pathfinding duties for the commando main body or commando company. So we were out at the front on Polaris ATVs, four or, four or six wheelers, and the IED threat was high. We took solace from that, Alex, knowing that the 20 or 40 kilo HME or homemade explosive we would hit, pretty sure we wouldn't know anything about it if we did hit, hit something. So there was some solace in that, believe it or not. And you touched earlier about the tempo, tempo of rotations of the deployments, and that is something that from 05 to 07, things were chugging along, but then as you hit 07, 08, 09, 10, it was this accelerating race to keep deploying, keep deploying, keep deploying, and there's been a lot of discourse about overuse of special forces, about unorthodox or possibly incorrect wavering of troops just to be able to go back and rotate more frequently than they should have been, and that's been covered quite extensively elsewhere. So I can see that you feel you're doing your part by, like, I'm giving someone else a break by being here, and I'm also going here to be where you felt, I would say wrongly, but you felt you should have been because uh, Matty Locke had been there and done that. When you actually hit the ground, did you feel, this is right, I'm meant to be here, this is, did that resonate with you? Did that feel something in you for being there doing that? You've touched on a good point there, Alex. I guess being a tactical police group, I'd maintained some of my paramilitary skills to, to a reasonable standard. Were they special operations task group standard? Perhaps not. However, in the lead up training, those skills quickly came back, literally like a duck to water again. As the phrase goes, what I found is the mindset turned. It was it had never left me. It had just been a bit dormant, maybe. Just been a bit dormant in the military sense. So whilst I'd always been a very proactive federal agent, I think that sense of purpose and, and, and leadership, I would like to think, came to the fore immediately in, in how I led the sniper team over there. I would, I would like to think I had a great team, but it was interesting. You know, I, some very, very strong leadership challenges presented itself whilst there and created some Interesting scenarios where I learned a lot about myself. I wouldn't say bad, some indifferent perhaps, but certainly some very good things that I learned about myself. One saving grace, I think, out of this tour was the reaffirmation by a number of acts to myself that I wasn't a coward. I had to get up and go. I had drive. I would do what was required ahead of my mates, take that literally, that life-threatening movement, and I did it regularly over there. And so any latent or ghosts of letting my mates down or, or the fact that I wasn't there when to protect Matt or have his back were wiped clean from that tour with a number of instances of where I took lead in, in a tactical scenario and, and took that threat of death directly on myself. You've been in contacts before back in, say, Timor, but then did you find, I guess, the nature of these engagements different to that? Obviously a different climate, different geography, different terrain, but a different kind of enemy 
How did it feel different to be in those kind of contacts than leaving aside the obvious differences in terrain, climate and so on, the different enemy, uh, the different role, different experience level, but was the emotion, was the response that activating those core training skills the same? What was the similarities and contrast to you? Afghanistan, for me, this tour was different insofar as I found contacts. Exhilarating is a word that comes to mind, but it's probably not quite correct. I was very alive. I had a lot of clarity of mind when they occurred. It seemed that looking back and being honest, there wasn't a hell of a lot of pure fear. I was completely switched on, focused, and I was very aware, make no mistake. But the high level of visceral fear was not there. I remained clear of mind. A lot of people suffered from or experienced, and, and I certainly did at the beginning, it was the IED threat. And that led to a leadership challenge where I, I had with a, a younger guy that was in my group and we had a number of TTPs and, and drills and, you know, your five-metre drills, your 20-metre drills or, or what have you, a number of security drills, both static, when you go static and mobile, to minimise your statistical exposure to hitting an IED. This young guy repeatedly kept questioning me on them. We trained, trained on them over and over and over and I, I kept saying to him, just keep doing what you're doing is correct. Follow me, I'm watching you, you're doing nothing wrong. And I felt the Q&A kept occurring, occurring, occurring. And I had to say to him in the end, because I knew this is where he was going, I said, mate, I'm, I apologise. I cannot give you redemption here from death. I can't do it. If you follow the TDPs and SOPs, and if I'm leading, follow my the tracks of my ATV, statistically speaking, you are less likely to hit an IED. But I can't promise you you're not going to hit one. You've got to release this fear now. You've got to let it go. I need you to stop being so obsessed by this where possible. Remain operationally focused. Look to me. Let's have these conversations. But at the end of the day, we all know the risk here. So let's crack on. Earlier you described a lack of self-awareness. Did you feel it more here in that you are putting your life on the line to you know, embrace the dangerous situation, to protect others, to gain forward momentum in the contacts and execute these as correctly, efficiently and control the situation as best you can. There's always got to be an element there of not letting ego take over that you know, look at me how brave I am and what I've done here and all that. And you are being cool and calm and level-headed and I suppose you have to be very self-analytical and reflective and that might be in the group debrief process or just in your own mind, checking yourself and analysing your own performance and what you're contributing to the team. You're dead right, Alex. There was This was not about ego, never about ego with these things. And, and the guys I work with, it was – they were serious conversations that helped deep gravity and conveyed deep seriousness of what was going on. There was no egos involved here at all. It was about how do we prosecute targets, how do we prosecute the enemy, how do we make life hard for them, how do we kill capture, how do we disrupt them whilst maintaining our own lives and that of our mates. That's all it was about. There were a number of times, I, I suppose, that – Actions had to be taken and fast and they're on the fly and that's the nature of asymmetric warfare. That's, that's the nature of special warfare, special forces, who dares wins for instance. So where things had to be done fast on the fly, I chose to take the lead on those literally in a physical sense because our risk exposure heightened considerably during those periods and, and I'm talking pathfinding with IEDs. So with those things I, I just felt as team leader – I was not going to push the scout out in front of me to do that. This is something I can do. I will do it. 
and I need to move this. So it was, it was part of command and control, alleviating the risk for my men, I suppose. I thought, I believe this is how fast I need to move to obtain the objective or to minimise our risk exposure. Therefore, I'm going to move this fast. I can't possibly ask someone to do that. Surely I can't. And these are the conversations I used to self-analysis, I guess, and the conversations I used to have with myself. I can't ask someone to do that. It's difficult. I'll do it myself. On a couple of occasions, I did this myself, and that's purely because I felt I couldn't ask a team member to do that. Literally, don't ask a team member to do something if you're not willing to do it yourself. And I didn't have time to communicate that sometimes, so I was just with me, let's go. And Doug, you're back in Afghanistan a couple of years later, this time for diplomatic close personal protection. Talk me through that. That was contract work through a civilian company that worked for DFAT, and we provided diplomatic protection to the Australian diplomatic mission in Kabul. What that consisted of was us driving them around to their daily meetings in Kabul and also escorting them over you know, on their, their meetings or places they had to go over greater Afghanistan on their flights. So it was literally operating as, as, as one on, one up on them during their flights or two up on them during their flights down to four-man team or, or multi-team protection parties in and around Kabul. I mean, the potential threat is obviously there, but it's a very different tempo and nature of work. Did you find that jarring in any way compared to your recent-ish previous deployment there? Or I suppose you've been to Timor multiple times, Solomon Islands multiple times, wearing different hats. Did you find it easy to role change? I think I did. The routine and process was easy enough. The culture, the cultural change was somewhat difficult. In a lot of ways, we're doing the role was very similar to ones I'd done before in the military. However, I wasn't in the military anymore. I didn't have some of the protection mechanisms around the big army or big military around me anymore. So you felt isolated, exposed, both from a legal sense potentially, but certainly from a tactical sense on the ground. You were exposed. You're literally a gun for hire now. So each contractor has their own individual contract and are paid on a daily basis. And guys were getting removed. They were getting removed from incompetence and or perceived team dynamics, personal dynamics, I say perceived, sometimes real, real or perceived. If you didn't fit into that particular culture that had developed, you were removed and on a plane home, off contract, job lost. Very cutthroat, you were an individual, so whilst you were operating in a team, I didn't feel, and others may would argue differently perhaps, that I didn't have that team feel or culture like I did in the military. And you do that role for about a year, so it's quite a significant deployment. I worked on and off for that company for a year, yes, and, and I met some fantastic individuals and, and exposed me to, to working with, I guess, regular army. There were some regular army guys that had come on doing static security as well, guys from Special Forces East Coast, a range of demographic or ages of SSR operators, and certainly observing foreign close protection teams, diplomatic protection teams. That was both enlightening and funny. It was an enjoyable period. I met some wonderful people and, and look back on it, a lot of pleasant memories of, of the work and the individuals involved. Well, both times you were in Afghanistan, you found the work satisfying in different ways and they had their different kinds of challenges. How did you find coming home from Afghanistan, that switch, that transition into normal life both times? Were they comparable? Was one easy? Was one difficult? We do rotations at the embassy there, so it was at that stage eight on, four off. So we used to joke that by the time you, you landed and recovered from jet lag and or 
started to pack and leave at the back end of your month off. It was really three and a half weeks or three weeks of feeling clear-headed. So we've got eight weeks on ostensibly three weeks of valuable or workable time off back at home. So that was a brutal rhythm. I was single at the time, so it made it easier. It felt like the sort of Damocles in some in some ways when you're back home because the minute you're back home, someone hit the turn the hourglass or, or hit the timer and you're counting down three and a half weeks to, to prep and, and go straight back again. A lot of ways you, you felt like you'd never left Afghan and those three weeks were just an extended weekend. You never really switched okay. off or got settled, could settle into a normal quote-unquote rhythm? Not at all because you take you a week, seven to ten days to, to perhaps wash off the last experiences of, of that Afghan contract deployment. A week out, you'd start to heavily think about deploying again. So the short answer is it never really left your mind in that three to four weeks off, no. And how did that compare coming home from Afghanistan the first time? Look, I had a fairly brutal homecoming the first time insofar as for whatever reason, Army served me well once again and I ended up paying my own cab fare home from the airport. <laughs> so, and uh, we, we laugh now and it, it, it almost makes reads for a bad movie script, but that's what occurred. I came home, unexpected time of day, so I paid for my own cab, unceremoniously, I guess, coming home. Not that I was after ceremony, but it was a very strange transition coming home late afternoon in a cab that I was paying for myself to an empty house. I was dropping the bags and that's it, done. I've been over there in gunfights, leading the charge, and then, oh, this is it. Just it feels like a weird juxtaposition. It was, and I believe there's a... You suffer a bit of a mental jarring, for want of a better term, as you've just said. It's like a massive gear change. You've gone from seventh to first or reverse or something. It just feels like the gearbox, it, mentally speaking, is going to stall a bit before it can reset and go. What didn't make it any easier was at that stage, we went in through Kuwait on the way in, but came out through Al Minad on that occasion. They changed the, the jump off point and jump in point. You were meant to have seven days decompression just outside Dubai. They're in Al-Minhad Air, Air Base. But what occurred is they immediately getting there. The authorities decided to put restrictions on what you couldn't do. So we're actually confined to base at certain periods, even though legally in Dubai you could have had a beer. They were trying to ban any drinking of alcohol. And what I found, my observations at least, is that a lot of those guys came home even angrier, disillusioned after seven days in Al-Minhad than they had when they left Tarankout. By the time you've wrapped up that year or so away on CPP, Doug, you've been in the military for over two decades. You've deployed quite a lot. You've also had your AFP career, which is still ongoing at this point as well. Had it started to take a strain on you? Were you feeling sort of the tax of those years and a long sustained point of, to be honest, very high draining tempo or was it still driving momentum or is it, is it both? Is it that you've got a drive and an energy and a passion for this, but it also chips away at you? All of those things, Alex, as I came to realise later, it had chipped away at me over years and I, just through that relentless drive and the operational treadmill, I was able to compartmentalise it and push it aside into the subconscious. You can only do that for so long, obviously, and it came crashing down for me in 2012, late 2012, start of 2013. I had a significant mental health scenario to deal with and that's where it ended I guess ostensibly my higher level tempo special operations or career I guess ended right there the one thing that was a saving grace I suppose was the fact that I remained in armed reserve then and I was able to start doing as I was still a 
an army sniper supervisor. I was able to go back and run or act as a supervisor on Royal Australian Regiment basic sniper courses that kept me socialised, connected with army, funnily enough, and was a saving grace at the end of the day. And I did that for three or four or five years, just back to back, course after course with different battalions. And after you'd come out the other side of that, did you have any looking back of, oh, I could have done a bit more, I could keep going again now, or you stuck to your ethos that you said much earlier in our chat that you don't believe in looking back, you believe in just taking a step forward? Well, I guess I, I broke my own rule there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Army was gunning for me for, for medical discharge for a couple of years and I successfully fought that, the old uh, J51 or, or whatever, I fought that three or four times, which is against the odds, around 2019, 2020, for a number of reasons that I guess have been in the media, I decided I'm going to stop fighting to stay in. And it's interesting, you know, working with a lot of some soldiers nowadays, they accept the medical discharge process. I fought it as hard as any battle I've ever fought. To stay in army, to continue serving. And I think I had the strange belief that perhaps I could redeploy the Middle East and and keep fighting, keep serving. That was never to be, and I ended up being medically discharged in 2020, circa 2020. And before we come to the final shedding of the uniform, so to speak, switching back to your other hat with the AFP, it brings you many overseas exchange programs, talked about a lot of the work and deployments you've done, but also the educational side of it, I suppose, as well, um, includes the German Federal Border Police, the FBI, hostage rescue team, the New Zealand Police Special Tactics Group. Is there a particular highlight moment or two, say in Germany or the US, that you know, stand out to you as highlight points for skills? You acquired skills, you imparted, or just getting to meet and work with other countries? I did an exchange with the German Federal Air Marshal Program, which sits under the German Federal Police, and that in line with that, it was under the umbrella of GSG-9 or GSG-9, the, the police special group, and they run counter-terrorism, counter-terrorism operations in Germany. And it was given to the police in Germany because they had, under legislation, German military can't be used against its own population. So if something like the, the Red Army Factional or something, you know, some random terrorist group, homegrown, people with a German citizenship, caused an incident, the army legally couldn't respond. GSG-9 was a police unit to get around that or to make that you know, legal. So I went across and did an exchange with them and what was gratifying there is all their firearms instructors, the GSG-9 firearms instructors, and that's when I realised that these years of bulk and gross pistol training, as in, you know, literally, as they say, up to our knees in, in empty brass every day at the range, our pistol work, myself and another guy that went over there, was far superior. We are engaging moving targets at 7 to 10 metres with point-and-shoot methods. We weren't even picking up the front foresight and we were using um, overtaking or tracking methods with the pistol to engage, running targets at 7 to 10 metres. And they were picking up that we weren't using the front foresight and they're very process-driven, the Germans, famously. They stopped me and said, look, we feel that, not sure why, but I feel that there may even be a safety issue here because you're not picking up your front foresight. We teach the traditional on-target, on-trigger, like say, gun up, safety off, on-target, on-trigger, then foresight, rear-sight, foresight, foresight, foresight. Press, whereas... You're just posting and, and firing without even picking up the front foresight. And I said, well, look, that's all. It's about body alignment, strength of position, correct position, a clean position, absolute neural pathway burning. I've been doing this for years now. And as you can see, 
seven metres running targets, I'm nailing nine out of ten. Yeah, you push me back to ten, I'm nailing seven or eight minimum. Your own personnel are hitting three or four tops. So I, I don't believe it's a safety issue. Correct me if I'm wrong. That wasn't said arrogantly. It's matter, it is a matter of fact. The stats there speak for themselves. Yes, and, and please, if I'm seeing it from a wrong perspective, please correct me. They were open-minded enough to, to go, no, look, you are correct. Notwithstanding the fact that I brought home a lot of good lessons from what they did, I think we, we passed on a lot of good areas to them with our tactics and certainly our, our pistol work. How do you part ways with the AFP? Look, I was cooked in the end. I just had enough of being a police officer, I guess. And look, I think that was the start of the acute mental health episodes I was, I was going through at that point. So it was time to leave, I thought. Funnily enough, I'll leave that and then go straight into contracting at the Kabul Embassy. But then after that, once I'm trying to negotiate these mental health issues, once I realised that I, I was getting medically discharged, I needed just to accept this and formulate a plan to move forward successfully. Well, how I thought this may occur would be through education, different neural pathways, civilianise, for want of a better term. So I was lucky enough to receive a scholarship from the ex-service organisation Wandering Warriors. They run on the smell of an oily rag, volunteers only, but they run programs of, of tertiary education. Fee-free, full scholarship, half scholarship, MBA degrees through a number of institutions Australia-wide. So I was lucky enough to get one of those scholarships and started studying at the University of Queensland, doing an MBA. Tell me more about your work in Wandering Warriors today, Doug. With Wandering Warriors, it's very personal to me because I'm doing an MBA. I'm studying, I'm, I'm civilianising, as I said, retraining the way I think. And we know in the military, the officer stream is set up in the tertiary aspect. They usually exit with some kind of tertiary degree by way of their career progression. It happens, certainly from major or captain level onwards. Diggers, not so much. So Wandering Warriors, their aim is they, they give diggers a crack. Let's talk about Private Joe who, who leaves school at 18, may do 10, 12, 15 years in the Army, punch out the back end, Corporal Sergeant Warren Officer, have no degree. So may have even left school in, in the old days at year 10, having no civilian career experience and no formal education. And presenting themselves to a civilian employer, most likely, who doesn't have the full appreciation of what that resume they have means and the skills acquired because they're used to reading their own CV World shorthand. You're dead right, Alex. And the digger doesn't have the wherewithal or the knowledge or the ability or experience to translate that. This gives diggers a crack and allows, um, and I'm, I'm doing my MBA with another mate of, mate of mine now who was an ex-private soldier from 89 no university degree, no undergrad. It's allowed him to step through the segmented process of graduate certificate, grad diploma, into the MBA, and he'll punch out the back end of two or three years with a, with a master's of business admin. It's, it's a brilliant concept. It looks after soldiers, as, as I said, in the organisation. More importantly, is outcome focused. They drive every dollar to its maximum maximal gain. Most people who join the military won't serve there till retirement. That's just not in the nature of the gig, you know, it's not a sporting career where if you make a certain level at sport, you know, you can get out the other side of that and you might coach or commentate or, you know, whatever other gig. There's so many out there that aren't going to have that kind of setup and suddenly be, oh, crap, what do I do now? And to give the tools to self-direct, I think, is a very admirable goal. I think so, Alex. And Wandering Warriors started as a, a niche special operations command veterans, ESO, a lot of words there, 
more recently they've had an Australia First initiative, the Crate Foundation under Wandering Warriors, and that's Crate with a K, named after the famous operation the Z Force did in World War II in Singapore Harbour. What the Crate Foundation does is it, it translates, we talk SF veterans, SOCOM veterans, males and females. They run week-long courses where they translate the SF skills or the special forces skills, special operations skills of the guys and girls, and markets them as top-tier talent. And they talk about triple Ts or three Ts. They market them to leading Australian and global companies. We're talking Microsoft, Boeing. So we have these players in the room, chief operations officers, CEOs of Australia, Australasia, in the room, the Crate Foundation are translating the skills of these special operations veterans directly to these key players in these civilian organisations. These special forces people on this week's course then get up, they pitch themselves to these people and they punch out the back end with the view of getting a civilian role and a good entry-level role or, or higher role immediately as top-tier talent, SF personnel transitioning. I can hear the energy passion for this as you speak to me, Doug, and it strikes me that you left the military in 2020 and you'd already hung up the AFP by that point, a little burned out perhaps and definitely sort of low energy reserves, but I think it sounds like you've found a great calling, something that's all keeping you very connected to that old life, but you're having a positive outlook step forward onto your next life and you're pushing, forging ahead and it's been a few years now. How do you reflect on the last few years and your journey post-military? It's very gratifying, Alex. It's wonderful to now deal with SOCOM or SASR veterans and be in a position to be able to assist them, seeing that they may be negotiating transition, adjustment changes, and perhaps some mental health issues that go along with that. And knowing that I was in their shoes, but being able to guide them and provide relevant, workable advice and see them step onto an MBA, having walked that path, I can give them literally a soldier's five on a number of different topics within that to assist with their transition, I suppose, but certainly the education process, how to study, how to obtain best results. So I'm very passionate about it and it's it's very important, I believe. Well, Doug, you've had a remarkable career of service, but that didn't end when you hung up the uniform for the final time. I mean, you volunteer for Wandering Warriors and your head and mindset and heart is very much in this space. So in a way, your service is ongoing. Thank you for all that you've done for Australia, but most importantly for your mates and for sharing your story and speaking with me today. You're very welcome and I appreciate your kind words, Alex. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Lloyd and you're listening to Life on the Line. That was the final episode of Season 7 of Life on the Line. We will be back in December for our Christmas on the Line Volume 6. Stay subscribed to us through our website, on YouTube, and through your favourite podcast app to know when future episodes drop. Make sure you're also following us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLPod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line Season 7 has been brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, Sharon Maskeldare, and Sophie Hu of Thistle Productions. Our artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Our theme music is by Dan Van Werkhoven.
Thank you all for listening. And lest we forget. Thank you.